Hello, welcome to another fun and fact-filled episode of Nature's a Hoot with Tom and me. Thanks, Hannah. Um, Hannah, how are you feeling now that the nights are drawing in a little bit? It's getting very wintry out there, isn't it? It is getting wintry. I I like the winter. As long as it's not raining and very, very windy the whole time, I, quite, I really like those crisp, uh, sunny, wintry days. I think... As it gets darker in the evening, it does mean you have less time to sort of spend outside, which can be a little bit more difficult. But I do really like those crisp days in winter. How about you? I don't know. I think I I instinctively dread winter a little bit. And the only reason is, is because at least half of my job is outside. So those elements I, I, I just yeah. can't avoid. So it's really cold in the morning. We are, of course, still open throughout the, throughout the season. But I think it's... Um, yeah, it's very different, very different in the winter. It can sometimes feel really quiet at work, can't it, if there's not very many people around? Yeah, definitely, which is a bit of a shame, really, because we fly different birds during the winter to the ones that we fly during the summer. So a lot of the summer team that have flown right throughout that summer and kind of autumn period, they get a bit of a rest over the winter. And we, we fly birds like the Golden Eagle, Saxon, which is incredible. She likes flying in front of smaller audiences. Um, she likes it when it's cooler. She doesn't really deal with the heat quite so much. Um, so that's really exciting. We fly the Snowy Owl. So, you know, if anybody's um, thinking of wanting to do something over the winter period, then coming to see us is, is good just for that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, th- I think, um, although there's lots of good aspects to winter, um, I find myself getting a little bit, little bit down like you said when yeah. the nights are drawing in there's not as much time to go out spotting wildlife of an evening after work and and uh, you're kind of huddled in at home aren't you yeah I think especially in these times now with this pandemic it's probably going to be quite difficult for some people having to stay in all the time and I think I know I definitely make the most of my weekends more in the winter so if the weather is nice at the weekend then I'm definitely going to be out but, you know, if it's a rainy, you have a whole weekend that's very rainy or it just feels like it's dark when you get up and dark when you get in from work, sometimes that can be a bit of a downer, can't it? Yeah. I mean, I know when it's getting closer to the clocks being turned back because this morning my alarm clock was a tawny owl. So I think it's still dark enough for the tawny owls to be calling before my alarm goes off. <laughs> and that's when you know the dark mornings are, are heading in for sure. Um well, that's a nice alarm clock to have. <laughs> it's not bad, is it? Not bad. We've got um, we've got a little family of tawny owls, I think, that live in the back garden. But this one was, um, I say our back garden. It's next door's back garden, really. Theirs is much bigger than ours. Um, but uh, we still get to uh, we still get to hear them and see them. Um, but this one was stood outside the telegraph pole, stood on top of the telegraph pole, just outside my bedroom window this morning. Oh, that's lovely. Mine's next door's car engine, so <laughs> I prefer yours. A <laughs> little bit different. <laughs> um, so some people I know as well, um, and a few friends of mine actually seem to suffer from SAD. Have you heard from SAD uh, about seasonal SAD? affective disorder? Yeah, Is so that, to do with the amount for, of I think. Um, serotonin and melan- melanin. Melanin. <laughs> that's like a tongue twister. Um, that one. <laughs> I think it's melanin. No, well, melanin is melanin. Is that's it melanin? Yeah. Okay, but it's about how much light you get into your eyes, isn't it? Because if yeah. you, because the days are longer in the summer, you've got more opportunity for light for UV light, on not just in your eyes, but I think like on your skin as well. Obviously, we actually need that to mm. be able to make vitamin D. Is it? I think, and yeah, obviously in the winter, you can't get as much light, so it does result it can result in lower levels of those hormones that are like the feel good hormones yeah it affects the hypothalamus doesn't it um yeah i'm re- i'm not big on on my on my um, brain bird science. biology no problem at all <laughs> human biology we're starting to go off of our uh, yeah. specialism there um but it kind of does prove i guess that it's not just a a chosen thing for people to start feeling a little bit little bit down around this time of the year when we're heading into you know longer nights and shorter days um, yeah. there might actually be something scientific behind it yeah absolutely it. absolutely but like you said making the most of the weekends is probably probably the way around it when you can get out and about that's that's the way to do it and the answer to the growing dread of the colder damper days and darker nights might just be as simple as getting outdoors as much as possible yeah i think so and in that stream of thought uh, this month we're talking about the link between wildlife the outdoors and our mental health 
and our physical well-being and how nature can be more important to the way that humans think and act than we might expect. As evidence continues to show that wildlife-rich, biodiverse environments are good for our mental and physical health, we're going to take a look at ways that we can all benefit from a connection with nature um, and hopefully improve our quality of life. Absolutely. So let's get stuck in. So I think it's important to understand what is meant by uh, well-being. It's it's less about the in-the-moment happy thoughts that we might get from time to time, and it's much more about sort of lifelong satisfaction, I guess, and how valued you feel by the world around you and how accomplished you feel and how at peace you feel. And we're quite lucky, I think, Hannah, because we have, uh, well, for one thing, quite niche jobs, but also our jobs are kind of labour of loves, aren't they? They're, they're kind of born out of passion. So our daytime satisfaction is usually pretty good. Yeah, I think so. I think it helps if you are lucky enough to have a job that you feel passionate about. So that's, I mean, your work is what you spend most of your time doing, isn't it? Other than maybe sleeping. And <laughs> you, so you, it, it does really help to do to be doing something that you feel passionately about and something that makes you feel good. Because well-being is definitely, like you said, not just about being happy day to day, but also about your sense of purpose and um, sort of how you look into the future and how well you cope with the things around you as well. So although with our job it can it is very positive, I think there are probably aspects as well that um, bring that into it, where sometimes things can be difficult to cope with. So like we were talking about last month with extinction and climate change, there's this whole thing now of, um, like, I can't remember what the exact term is, but it's sort of like earth anxiety, where people are actually becoming more anxious and more or climate anxiety more um, down because of the state of the planet, which is really sad. Um, Definitely, I think it's such a huge crisis, isn't it? That as yeah. an individual, and we talk about this a lot on the show, and I think it's important because you know we, we talk about the little ways that we can all make a, a bit of a difference to the wildlife around us and and try and support it. But when you look at the uphill climb that we've got to try to surmount, it is very easy to get depressed about. Yeah. And, and we do exactly the same. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, um, you, Hannah, and, and the other guys that work in the conservation and research department, there will be setbacks, be yeah. that in, you know, applying for funding, being that in the projects that we're actively working on, there will be setbacks that, you know, that is depressing. When you think we're, you know, trying to save a species here or we're trying to increase a population here back to to prior levels and there's a setback that's that's huge yeah I think it is it's one of the downfalls maybe of of caring so passionately about something is that when something bad happens it's even worse um but I think I'd still rather be in my position and be doing a job that I really care about than a job I don't really care about And you mentioned about the kind of environmental anxiety, this this climate anxiety almost, that kind of came about when Extinction Rebellion were, were um, doing their protests and, and it became almost every single day on the television, radio, we were talking about um, awareness for our climate and for our planet and the things that we need to do to, to change it. Yeah. And, you know, the, the more we, we kind of talked around it, even at home, you know, we kind of started off quite empowered by it, but it's very easy to get bogged down in the in the negatives of it. That, you know, unless things change quite drastically, it feels a bit difficult, and it's easy to get down about that. I think it. We have to remember how important, like we were saying, that nature is for your well-being. So, like we were saying before, that it's not just about losing those things that are nice to look at, um, and obviously food sources and things like that. We're losing nature which it, we need for our mental health. Um, yeah, so it's actually something you can't see of it. So something that's nice to look at, yeah. we're losing. Something that is imperative to our survival in terms of food production, but also that has this kind of invisible impact positively on our mental health as well. Yeah, I think it's... Um, and at every level as well. So if you, if I think about the small things that I do to sort of get me out of a funk or if I'm feeling a bit down... Like, even if I feel like I'm not 
I've been working all morning and then I've, I've started to get a little bit less productive. If I just get up and go into the garden or even if I just look out the window into the garden and watch the birds on the feeder or just walk around the garden, look at some of the flowers, listen to some of the birds, I can I can do do that for a minute and come back in and feel completely refreshed. And the same with longer term, if I go for a walk out in in nature even if it's not it doesn't have to be like in the middle of the countryside just through some fields or just even just around just outside it can just make you feel so much better um and i think there is definitely a um growing evidence to show that spending time outside and spending time in nature actually does lift your mood and make you feel better yeah and i think it's important to regularly check in with ourselves isn't it and you know just Definitely. just see how we're feeling let's see whether things are getting a little bit too much and and talking to people about it is always what we're told to do so I'm here talking to you Hannah about it and at the moment I'm feeling all right and it sounds I'm like good. you're feeling all right as well yeah I think so <laughs> so uh Hannah we did a bit of research ourselves into all of this didn't we we did we did so it is an ongoing project. We're working with um, Surrey University Environmental Psychology Department um, with a lecturer there, Dr. Kaylee Wiles. Um, and she has done quite a lot of work on um, how important nature is for your well-being, particularly feelings of restorativeness, which means sort of lifting your mood and feeling better effectively and a lot of the work she's done is marine based and we will be chatting to Kaylee a bit later uh, but so the work we've done at the trust we've collaborated with Kaylee on this with Surrey University on this and we've had some students um, from Surrey to come along and basically ask our visitors how watching one of our displays affects their mood. We do this by using questionnaires and they will self-report so you do a baseline first you ask some questions before they watch the display and then you have them sit in the arena without any birds flying around and then you and then they watch the display so then they rate how they feel after just sitting in the arena and then they rate how they feel after watching the display and it was really the results were actually really interesting and we compared them also to a similar situation but a lab-based study so that basically means instead of actually being in nature there's they're watching videos or they are looking at photos of birds or photos of our meadow or our woodland arena and yeah so the results were really interesting what we found was that proximity is a really important aspect so people um, were affected more positively by sitting in the arena with the birds flying around they, that was a mood lifter so that was good for your well-being and people felt better after watching our bird displays which is brilliant yeah what a plug yeah <laughs> it's actual science <laughs> <laughs> good to know that we don't just we don't just talk a lot of rubbish it's actually <laughs> yeah exactly science. that's even better yeah that's even better so how many people roughly were involved in the study um so there were two separate studies um in the field as in in using the displays one had i think 25 and one had about 50 so it's a fair still a fairly small sample size but this was sort of like a pilot to see if it would be a feasible thing for us to study in more detail um, and we are definitely going to carry on working with Kaylee and with Surrey University to find some other ways that we can look at our displays and look at visiting the trust and see how it affects people's well-being. If it is, well, we know it's good for people's well-being, but we like to show it properly with science. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to carry on working with them and hope for some results probably towards the end of next year, I think. Brilliant. And what's kind of the hopeful outcome? What can we do with this data? I think the hopeful outcome would be to publish the results um, showing that uh, places like the Hawke Conservancy Trust, so um, zoological, zoological collections or zoos, um, parks that um, do bird flying displays, are good for your well-being and also showing that just being out in nature is really good for your well-being um and 
spending time at the trust so being uh walking around our grounds being at the trust is good for you so it's a way of kind of bolstering our claims that coming here to visit us or getting out in the wild just generally is a is a positive thing for yeah, you yeah exactly many ways. um hoping to lead towards more sort of conservation related behavior and hoping that if people realize how good it is for their well-being that they then care more about nature and they care more about conservation and then that leads to positive actions to conserve wildlife fantastic let's going back to that thing of you only conserve what you love and you only love what you know and yeah exactly. getting involved and being right there with a critically endangered vulture is going to make you want to to help and support that species equally Absolutely. a walk around a wildflower meadow is going to make you care about it because you want to have that feel good moment in your life forever rather than losing it over the coming years yeah brilliant so you've been chatting to Kaylee, haven't you just to find out a little bit more about the study a little bit more about the work that she's been doing um should we have a listen to your interview yeah Hello, so we're here with Kaylee Wiles from the University of Surrey, and she is a lecturer in environmental psychology. Hello, Kaylee. Hello, hi. Welcome. So Thank tell you. us, what does your position at the University of Surrey involve? Well, I both teach and research topics within environmental psychology. Okay, so tell us what, what is environmental psychology? Uh, well, it's a scientific study of how we as individuals, as humans, interact with the physical and sometimes social environment around us. Uh, and so for me, in particular, my research focuses on two aspects of this interaction, both looking at how spending time in the environment, specifically nature, has impacts on us. So looking at how our mood, our mental and physical health improves by spending time in different environments. We might learn stuff. Uh, but then I also look at the other side. So looking at how we as individuals have an impact on the environment itself. So looking at behaviours. Why do people uh, behave in good or negative um, ways that might harm the environment for example like leaving litter uh, and why do people do good things like picking up rubbish or uh, trying to be conservative with their energy usage and those type of things so trying to understand both sides the impact the environment has on us and understanding what affects our behavior that then impacts the environment so we're working together on a few projects so how did you first get involved with the trust well, initially it was as a visitor coming and watching the bird displays myself. Um, but then over these last couple of years, we've been working together doing some research. Uh, and so with this particular research, there's a lot of work which has been done, which shows that spending time in nature can be beneficial to our mental and physical health. And so there's things like improving our mood, but also our physical health, like heart rate and blood pressure. And some studies have shown that uh, wildlife and biodiverse environments can be especially beneficial so if you see more yeah. birds and other wildlife it does boost those benefits and so what uh, I was interested in and what we've been working together on is trying to understand how the trust kind of fits with this and whether or not visitors get similar benefits as with other studies looking at nature um, and maybe sometimes more benefits and so with this we were looking at how giving people access to actually see and experience different types of kind of bird behaviors uh, and different types of wildlife, how this actually has an impact on the trust's visitors. And so over the past few years, I've had a couple of undergraduate students who've done nice little projects uh, with you and the team, looking at how visitors come and experience the different bird displays. So one student, Jess, she, asked uh, some of your guests to come and complete a questionnaire at numerous times during their visit. Uh, so as they arrived, they did a questionnaire and then they were asked to complete a questionnaire after just sitting down and enjoying the uh, natural environment. So looking over, overlooking the meadow and then also before and after watching one of the actual bird displays. And Jess found when it came to the owl display, this was seen to improve people's mood more so than any other situation so it was better than just sitting in nature more generally 
And then Phoebe did a study last year which looked at the kite display uh, and looking at a different environment, so not the woodland anymore, and also found that spending time and watching the bird display was uh, extra beneficial when it came to people's mental health and well-being. So their mood improved and they found it to be a valu very valuable experience. Really interesting. So the, I remember, obviously, both Jess and Phoebe, really great students, fascinating that our displays have that effect on people i think it's great for us to be able to show that as well um what's sort of the next steps do we think in terms of how our work is going to develop together well there's so many different avenues it can take that's one exciting part of it uh, and so what the works started to show and it started to uncover is not just that nature is beneficial or that potentially these shows are beneficial, but we're trying to understand what it is and why. Um, and one aspect that we've been discussing and I'm particularly interested in is how, how we engage with nature. So at the trust, people get to have hands on, uh, maybe not always physically hands on, um, <laughs> but they get to see uh, wildlife in action right in front of their eyes. And it's quite an active kind of process. And I know at the Trust, there's different levels of kind of types of engagement. You can have different day experiences. Uh, and the same when it comes to just nature more generally. We can be both passive and just walk through a natural environment, or we might be engaging in a much more active way. And so one thing I'm particularly interested in is how this level of engagement, how our activities can actually influence these benefits. Hmm. So looking at, say, uh, I know at the Trust and other organisations, you can do some volunteering and actually have hands-on kind of experience on uh, the issues at hand. Yeah. Uh, and so it could be things like monitoring. It could be quite passively just um, counting the birds in your garden. There's um, different kind of citizen science. Yeah. Um, protocols like that where you can actually help feed into scientific data collection or it could be going and helping and helping with the recovery and saving um, different animals so I'm interested in do these extra more active elements have yeah. greater benefits for not only the animals but also us ourselves yeah that's yeah I think I'm really interested in that as well especially the citizen science side of things sort of mm -hmm. if people are actually really contributing to a project I think there must be something in that in that it is definitely good for your well-being to feel that sort of sense of purpose and um, that you're really helping to make a difference mm -hmm. um, so linked to some of your other work I know you've worked um, a lot with citizen science and in marine environments so I've uh, obviously read about your beach clean citizen science project can you tell us a bit more about that? Uh, yes, so uh, some of my work has looked at specific types of environments. So a lot of my work has been done on the coast and on aquatic environments. And with this, going on to the whole, how do people engage? I was interested to know if uh, different, again, activities have an influence. So what I was interested in was comparing how citizen science compared to um, what most people do, which is go for a nice coastal stroll uh, along the beach how they compare and what we looked at was we had three groups of people one group um, did a coastal walk and so they just walked for an hour and a half back and forth along um, a Devon coastline uh, one group did a beach clean and this had a citizen science element where not only did they remove the rubbish, but they also took note of every single item that they found. And this fed into the Marine Conservation Society's uh, beach watch. And so they collected that aspect. And then we also did a third group who also did a citizen science, but it focused on biodiversity, where they were recording how many different species were found in rock pools and along the coastal margin. And so I was interested in comparing not only the level of engagement, but also what you're focusing on. So by doing citizen science, like looking at marine litter, you're really focusing the person's attention on a negative thing, litter, rubbish. Mm. Most people don't like this. So actually by engaging in this activity, is it potentially harmful to the individual because you're yeah. really emphasizing maybe not such a nice thing. So I wanted to see, first of all, are these activities different? Uh, and if, in and if so, in what direction? 
So what are the sort of aspects that you would look at? Because you said that um, it could be that some people would find, would have, it, there would be a negative effect. Would that be like a negative effect on their mood in terms of sort of feeling down afterwards because they might feel negative about um, there being too much litter? Yeah, so we looked at three main outcomes. One was their mental health and well-being, so including mood uh, and exactly that. Did they then just feel down that this was happening yeah. and this was an issue around the world? Uh, we also looked at another aspect of mental health and well-being, which was kind of more how meaningful and how, how worthwhile the activity was. Uh, but we also examined, did they learn anything? Yeah. And looking at their understanding and awareness. And we also looked at behavior to see if what they did then had an influence on their future leisure activities, but also their other pro-environmental behaviors. So hmm. for example, if you did a beach clean this one time, are they likely to do it again in the future or maybe uh, reuse a coffee cup um, when yeah. they next go to the coffee shop and so on? So we were interested in multiple aspects. What are the, the different types of impacts these activities can have? So what did you find? What were the what were the results and what was interesting about them? Well, there's so many interesting findings. One <laughs> part of it was um, that when it came to mood, actually, it didn't matter what you did. All participants, when it came to all the different activities, had a good time. So showing that going to the coast was beneficial for mood, but it didn't really matter what you do. Yeah. What we did find was there were some differences in particular measures. So when it came to that aspect of how worthwhile and meaningful it was, that's, those measures were much greater when it came to the beach clean. People got a, a greater sense of achievement and mm. that they actually contributed something to that activity compared to just going for a coastal walk, or even the Rockpool Ramble at um, Citizen Science. So beach cleans were seen to be as a, a winner on that aspect. Um, when it came to knowledge and understanding, as you probably would anticipate the people who did the citizen science and was actually recording information they found to um, improve their knowledge and understanding about either marine litter or about biodiversity and then when it came to behavior um, we found that all three activities um, people had the intention to do more pro marine behaviors so they were planning to recycle more and look after the environment and stuff like that but it was only the citizen science beach cleaning condition which actually uh, stayed at that higher level a week later so as soon as you kind of left the beach some people went back to their baseline yeah. intentions and behaviors but it was those who did a beach clean actually kept those intentions up um, as we recorded a week later okay that's really interesting so they because of doing something or oh, well maybe I'm <laughs> assuming, but because of doing something that they felt was worthwhile, felt like they were contributing to, it sort of made them feel more purpose, I guess, um, mm. in terms of, yeah, the contribution that they were maybe making to the environment. And then that led to more pro-environmental behavior. So that's brilliant because it means that getting involved and getting out into nature and connecting with nature is a way to sort of, also concert in turn conserve nature yeah and i think there's a big kind of uh, reciprocal relationship with that yeah so if we do something good for the environment it can be good for us so our mood and our well-being side of things but then it might promote other behaviors which then in turn is good for the environment which then yeah. means that we have a nice rich environment which is then good for people so it's a, a very cyclical. related <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> yeah so talking about connection to nature and people sort of reconnecting with nature maybe um or people who may may not have access to um you know national parks or nature reserves maybe in urban areas how would you sort of how would you recommend that people might might connect with nature well there's so many different ways and it doesn't matter where you live nature is always around us uh so even if you are in a, an apartment block in the, in the middle of London, there'll still be birds which are kind of flying around. There'll still be, um, even if it's a small pocket um, park, yeah. there will be always some form of vegetation, trees, animals to kind of look out for. Uh, 
So I guess a big part of that is just try to spend time in that environment, even if it's just a little stroll in your lunch break. Yeah. One thing that I personally find really useful and I've really enjoyed, especially during this pandemic where your everyday activities have probably changed quite a bit, is trying to spot different things. So before I might just walk past this bush, but now if I see something moving, I'm curious and I want to see what it is. Is it a robin? Is it a blackbird? What is it? What is it doing? So uh, I guess a good part of kind of connecting is just try to pay a bit more attention to see, yeah. take that moment, take that five minutes to sit on a bench uh, and just try to appreciate what's around you. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, that's probably the main thing. And even if it's not necessarily going outside, looking out your window or watching a nature documentary. I mean, everybody yeah. loves David Attenborough, it seems. So um, <laughs> yeah. there's always something on TV where there's a bit of nature there. Do you have a do you have a go to place that you like to visit to reconnect or to connect generally with nature? What's your what do you do? For me, I think everybody's kind of got a favourite. It used to be the coast, or well, it still is the coast. I could spend hours just sitting out watching the sea, watching the waves lap. Um, but because of COVID, uh, because yeah. travel was restricted and stuff, I found myself going in different places. So I do live uh, quite near some nature reserves uh, and that's been one of my passions of going and trying to take photos of different birds and seeing different behaviours. Um, but it could even just be going to the nearby woods um, and you might be able to hear a woodpecker, but to actually see it, <laughs> that's an accomplishment. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's those little things of just, I guess I try to do hide and seek but of wildlife. That's my kind of way of connecting with nature at the moment. Yeah, I definitely... Um found a difference during the pandemic and I think it sort of made me well first of all it made me really want to make the most of that short time that we could go outside and it definitely made me appreciate my local patch so just going out even just walking around even just walking around the estate that I live on which is like a new build estate you would think it'd be completely barren of wildlife yeah like you said you still see you know birds in the hedges and vegetation and trees to identify so it's it's definitely I think nature is definitely accessible for everyone you just got to get out there get outdoors and and just spend time out there mm, and that's actually something which we are currently looking at so uh, I'm part of a team at the University of Surrey which is looking at how we have been engaging with nature during this pandemic so looking exactly that what are people doing where are people going for the people who can't go outside, what are those impacts? Are they finding nature in different ways, like in TV and uh, online and watching mm. things on social media? Um, and for the people who are going outside, are they, it could go in two, di two different directions. Are they appreciating the nearby nature more than they had before? Are they experiencing it much more? Or is it the, the other way around where people are getting bored of it and they want to actually go yeah. out? They've had enough of it now and they're desperate to go further. And so we're interested in understanding how people use nature uh, during this time. Uh, is that going to be sustained? Yeah. So we're doing a follow up again next year and stuff, hopefully when this all starts to pass over to see how our use, how our relationship with nature might have changed. We might have actually got stronger because of it um, because we're spending more time maybe mm. outside. So still early days, but we've got lots yeah. of questions, which we're really interested to know how this has affected our use and, uh, relationship with the natural world so what advice would you give to a young person maybe interested in a career similar to you or in uh, nature connectedness um, or the importance for well-being um, I guess the main thing is to just embrace it so yeah. what if you find interesting pursue it if you find that nature does interest you read more about it, learn about it, watch documentaries, learn about different animals and try to explore the different parts of the world. So with my research, I'm with my job, that's one reason why I love it. I basically have to think up of some interesting research questions and try to find out what the answers are. So it's all about feeding that curiosity. And yeah. if you're interested in our relationship with the world or how the world ticks, it's just that you're just constantly 
learning more about it, researching about it, finding out the answers. But by finding out those answers, it uncovers new questions. Um, and so with this particular job, a big part is just to follow your passion, follow your interests, and then the rest of it is easy. Did you always want to do something like this? Like what was your um, passion when you were younger? And what was there anything that was influential to you and made, sort of sent you in this direction, do you think? Definitely. And it's actually places like the trust. Yeah. Uh, so oh, I did brilliant. used to come. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I used to come to the trust and I used to love going to wildlife centers, zoos and aquariums and stuff like that. And actually, while some people might think that you should grow out of it, when I was uh, from 12 to 18 years old, I was determined that I wanted to be a dolphin trainer. <laughs> I wanted to go uh, and basically share my passion and enthusiasm for marine mammals make other people kind of love them as much as I do and want to protect the world and their world and so I actually wanted to be a dolphin trainer found out how to go about doing that and my choice was to go down the biology route and learn about how the animal's kind of body works yeah. or go down the psychology animal behavior route to understand how they think and that side of things and so because of my strength um, was more on the, the psychology front, I went down that path and I did a degree in psychology. It was only when I was doing my degree did I realise that environment psychology existed. And right. it was actually then I realised that's what I wanted to do. Um, it was understanding the relationship we have with the natural world and understanding what drives people rather than what drives the animals yeah. uh, and why are some people more connected to nature than others and what drives their behavior and so on and so it was only by doing my degree did I realize there's this kind of avenue and everything else is history so I might be might not be in a wetsuit being a dolphin <laughs> trainer anymore but I, I feel like I'm hopefully contributing to uh, the natural world in some way I think you definitely are Okay, well, that was great, Kaylee. It was really brilliant to talk to you and we really appreciate you um, coming along for an interview with us um, and really looking forward to working with you further. Um, yeah, so thanks very much, Kaylee. Thank you very much for the invitation. So, Tom, how does nature help your well-being? What, where's your sort of, do you have a go-to place when you're feeling a bit down? Yeah, I think I do actually. I mean, again, I'm, I always think I'm really lucky, to be honest, because I live in the countryside, work in the countryside. So it kind of becomes a baseline kind of normality for me to be out and about in the wild. And I, I think a lot of the, the well-being that I gain from being out in the wild is not necessarily something that I'm actively seeking. It kind of comes by osmosis almost that I'm just in the wild. And maybe that's why I did all right on the on the well-being score because it just kind of naturally happens but um definitely if i'm at home on the weekend and i think feeling a little bit glum even if it's wet um we've got a a, a lovely river just close to us and i can go and stand on the bridge and i can have a look at some of the uh the swans that come down there have a listen to the moorhen in the summer there's loads of butterflies on the buddleia bush that's just hanging over somebody else's back garden <laughs> and you can just see so much wildlife there um that i think that really kind of hits the reset button for me and i your head can just immediately clear yeah um and also that's where i see a kingfisher oh, really regularly amazing. so even if i don't see the kingfisher being in that place thinking about seeing the kingfisher in the mornings that's kind of enough to to sort of perk up my mood i think but yeah that's where i'll go and that's that's about I don't know, 40, 50 steps from my front door. So again, I'm so lucky um, to, to have that spot. How about you? Have you got somewhere to go? Um, I find I don't really mind where I go. I like I like going to new places and finding new places with nature that I might not have experienced before. But I think one of the things that I do is I walk quite a lot so I find going for a walk wherever it is is really good for me but I also find if I go out and actively try to learn something as well so if I take my binoculars or I take a wildflower book and go and do a bit of hunting and see what I can find 
that's I find that really restorative and really good for like a mood lifter for me Mm. um another thing I have is I have a place from my childhood that we used to go on holiday in Wales I think I mentioned it in a previous podcast I'm obviously obsessed with it this is where you saw the badger um yeah and I, I try to go there every year and I always feel really good after I've been there or I'm really good when I'm there just because it must be the childhood memories but it's in the middle of nowhere in Wales and it is just even just thinking about it can sometimes make me feel better um yeah yeah, so it's nice to have that I think to have somewhere you can go to even if you don't get to go there that often so we'd love to know about you whether you have a special place out there in the wild that helps you to recharge your batteries and boost your well-being then you can let us know about it through our social media channels we'd love to see pictures of your places and uh, hear your stories about how you can recharge out in the wild So, Hannah, it's now time for our big story of this month. And it's my turn this month. And I was very excited this month because uh, we saw the arrival of three new members of our flying team here at the Hawk Conservancy Trust. Now, there are species that we've already worked with, uh, but that doesn't make it any less exciting. It was the arrival of three brand new storks that have just arrived at the Trust to join... Brandy and Blossom in our Wings of Africa display Um, and that got us all talking about the reintroduction programme and our hopes for catching a glimpse of the wild ones in the not too distant future. So that's my big story, not just the arrival of three new birds here but also thinking about the reintroduction of a species that's been absent really from the Great British Isles for a little while. A little bit like we talked about the beaver a few months ago, now we're talking about birds. Uh, we're talking about these fantastic birds. Um, have you seen owl storks flying in the shows? Yes, I think they're my favourite at the end of the Wings of Africa display. So it's great news that we have three more. Will they be flying in? They'll be flying with Brandy and Blossom. That's what we hope. We haven't done introductions yet, so okay. they could be a bit standoffish to begin with. Um, but yeah. um, Gary, our Uh, head of living collections here it's kind of his job to make sure that those introductions go smoothly so they're in separate uh, enclosures at the moment and they can just about see each other across the path and hopefully it's that slowly but surely introduction to each other that's going to uh going to help things go smoothly um but as i was saying we were well i was researching a little bit more about the reintroduction program for Uh, European white storks to Great Britain because historically they are a species that uh, have lived and thrived throughout our British countryside. So when did storks go extinct in the UK Tom? Well the last breeding record was a pair that famously nested on St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh and that was in 1416 so over 600 years ago Um, and now we've got them breeding in Great Britain again um, largely down to this reintroduction programme and the one that we're talking about in particular is on the Nepa state um, and this is in Sussex and that's been the subject of quite a few rewilding projects over the last well over the last 20 years or so they started in uh, 2001 and it's brilliant they've had the the aim really is to restore a self-sustaining population of wild white storks from the Nepa state which is about three and a half thousand acres and this is kind of following on from fairly successful similar projects across Europe in Sweden, France and Belgium most notably and this particular project started out with essentially large enclosed areas and when we say large each of the enclosures is about six acres each so it's their own little slice of nature there for them and this is for a group of breeding birds that the hope is they will breed and then the youngsters will eventually go out and be part of the the wild population. Um, So it started out with uh, just over 160 wild individual uh, injured and rehabilitated birds. So the the top of the enclosures are open so that the wild birds can kind of come and go but because these birds are injured they can't necessarily fly out so they're a great anchor point for those uh, youngsters when they breed um, because it's it's thought that these birds are uh, very faithful to their natal site so they're likely to go off and fly around the UK 
hopefully eventually migrate as well um, as most of the storks do throughout Europe and then they'll come back to breed in the same place that they themselves hatched out in the in the previous years. So where did the original so the injured and rehabilitated birds are they adult birds or are they juvenile birds? Yeah, they were adult birds that had come from the wild, largely across Europe, with from okay. some of these other um, reintroduction sites, I think. Um, so they were kind of either imported birds that uh, were going to help re-establish this population in the UK. Um, and some of the work that has been done um, has been done with the Cotswolds Wildlife yeah. Park as well um, to breed birds in captivity and then release them onto this same site at the at the Nepa State. Yeah. And have they bred, um, the ones that have been reintroduced, have they bred in the UK? Yes, first successful yeah. reintro- reintroduction or first successful uh, breeding year was this year. Okay. So the first truly wild British white storks have gone out there into the wild now and uh, and uh, uh, successfully reintroduced really. So the project is a success. I mean, the aim is to have 50 pairs of successfully breeding white storks in the south of England by 2030. So the project's by no means over, um, but it's a, it's a good, certainly a good beginning yeah. if you've got uh, birds breeding and, and uh, doing it all by themselves really now. So what, ha- what about the migration? Because if these birds are from, I don't know, say Belgium or Sweden, then they'll migrate, presumably they'll migrate from the UK. When, do you know when they migrate? Because they migrate to Africa, don't they? Is it where they do? Yeah. So they they migrate to Africa to winter, essentially. Yeah. Um, and I was looking this up actually because I thought that that surely if you've been taken away from we're talking about how how um, loyal they are to that natal site that yeah. surely they might go back to there. Um, That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. And and there's, there has been some work done on this. A bit of studies done on this. Um, in terms of their migration down to Africa, so once they're here and they've spent that summer here and potentially a breeding season here, um, then they should become fairly wedded to that space because they know it's a good okay. place to establish a territory. Hopefully they've found a mate, so it's a good place to come back to. My thought was really the migration to Africa. So if there's no other wild white storks in Britain, how do those first yeah, birds know where know? to go? And this is kind of one of the great mysteries in a way. It's something that we're still it really is, understanding. Isn't it? Migration is fascinating. It's amazing, and I I feel like, you know, I know nothing really about about migration, and, and I think, no. you know, it's it's been a real eye opener to to research this a little bit for the storks because once they cross the channel and they see other white storks, they they have this. Okay. Um, conspecific attraction so these birds will come together they club together and then they all fly south together so they really are attracted to members of their own species so they'll kind of fly around in that first year a little bit aimlessly until they they see a more experienced bird and they'll fly in these groups of youngsters with a few adults in leading the way essentially um so once they're across the channel they're kind of um they're kind of home free that helps that they go across the channel first how do they know to go across the channel? That is a really good question, and uh, I can't find the answer oh, to that. <laughs> clever birds. I remember watching films about um, some of the reintroduction with some species of ibis. I think this was done with the northern bald ibis, another species yeah. we work with here. Because they migrate really far, don't they? They do, they do. And they, the people that were reintroducing them, they had to train them to fly to a microlite, I think. And then they would do right. part of the journey, at least with them, to kind of give them that first helping hand, that first step. Um, I mean, if, if there's a chance to go up a microlight to show all the wild mm-hmm. white storks how to go to Africa, I like, sign me up for that. That sounds really Are exciting. Are you volunteering? Yeah, no problem. I mean, I can't fly a microlight, but <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that's probably quite an important part of the, uh, the job description. So if we're lucky, we might start to see the white storks making their way across the trust here. We're kind of in the south of England, aren't we? And if we're really lucky, in the next decade or so, we might reach that 50 pairs successfully breeding in the south of England. And uh, we might see some of these birds starting to build those kind of iconic nests that you see across Europe. Um on the top of buildings, on the top of telegraph poles. Imagine like if we had storks and and beavers. Storks and beavers, yeah. And now we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> but I think actually the beavers were one of the suggested species to be introduced at NEP as well. Like that's something that they're they're wanting to do. I was reading when I was looking up about yeah, the storks. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, so so that would be that would be exciting as well. That idea seems to be spreading, doesn't it?
Now it's time for our top tip. This month is all about helping the wildlife in your garden prepare for winter. Many mammals, invertebrates and amphibians take a nap during the coldest months. Some species, like hedgehogs, even hibernate. You can help the wildlife in your garden by providing sheltered places for them to rest until spring. Put stick bundles in corners and borders and create wood piles where animals can shelter. Leave your plants to die back naturally and create cover and the seed heads will provide food for birds. Stacks of plant pots give bees and other insects a cool, dry place. Clean out your bird boxes to provide a sheltered roost over winter and avoid disturbing compost and leaf piles where there may be sleeping bees and hedgehogs. Yeah, it's a great top tip, Hannah. We need to prepare our gardens for this harsh winter that might be on its way. And I think the main thing that is clear from this episode, we've been talking all about well-being, is that we need to spend as much time as we possibly can outdoors and enjoying wildlife, which is what I'm going to stick with. And even better, you could come for a visit to the Hawk Conservancy Trust. But then I would say that, wouldn't I? I mean, you would, but it is a great place to visit, even in the winter. So we're going to be putting all the details we've discussed on this episode on our blog that accompanies the podcast, along with the links to the other projects we've talked about, like the one at NEP. In fact, we'll be looking a little deeper into the world of rewilding next month, won't we, Tom? We will, because I'll be heading over to the Cotswolds to meet Tabitha, who's a landowner, who's decided to return her 70 acres of fields and woodlands to nature. Remember, you can share with us all of your wildlife experiences, maybe your own garden rewilding projects um, through our social media pages. And don't forget to share with us how you improve your well-being with nature as well. So we're at Hawk Conservancy on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and Instagram. So until next month from Hannah and I, goodbye. Bye. Bye.